Good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this LSE Africa Talks public lecture. Before I introduce our, our guest speaker, I'd just like to thank Professor Makandawira uh, over there, uh, and also Dr. Kate Meag, I'm not sure if she's here, for making this talk possible, and also Ms. Malada Fumina for more than assisting uh, in the arrangements. Well, tonight's speaker is, of course, Professor, Professor Atto Quayson, and it's a great pleasure to be introducing him. He was born and educated in Accra and took his BA from the University of Ghana. From here, he went on to Cambridge, where he did his PhD, and then on to Oxford as a research fellow. He then returned to Cambridge as a lecturer in, in the English department, and was also the first director of the African Study Centre to actually come from the continent itself. In 2005, uh, he left us there to take up his current post, Professor of English at the University of Toronto, and also to set up its Centre for Diaspora and Transnational Studies, which he is the director of also. Amongst the many distinguished positions he has held um, includes a fellowship at the Du Bois Institute for African American Studies, Harvard, and he has guest lectured at universities um, around the world from Istanbul, Singapore, Amsterdam, Tel Aviv to Cape Town. In 2005, and I know this means an awful lot to him, he was elected fellow of the Ghana Academy of Arts and Sciences. But he'll not like me saying uh, this, I'm sure, but I think he is one of the leading African intellectuals of his generation on the planet. In fact, he'd probably kill me uh, for saying that, but I think I can rest my case on it. just even, even a slight uh, snapshot of his publications alone, which show how far outside of his field uh, his reputation goes. Um, these include, um, in addition to many standard texts and readers on post-colonialism and post-colonial theory and African literature, he has also published on disability and the crisis of representation in disability. He's written an anthology of writing on fathers and daughters, I suspect inspired by his experiences as a, a single parent with his two daughters. And he has just finished editing the much-anticipated two volumes of Cambridge history of post-colonial literature. And he hasn't gone mad uh, in the process uh, either. Mm -hmm. I think there's some, something that he's most proud of is writing the introduction to the Penguin Classic edition of Nelson Mandela's No Easy Walk to Freedom. Well, tonight, he's going to treat us to a foretaste of his chapter, A Work in Progress, that is coming out shortly, will be coming out shortly, in the Oxford Handbook of Post-Colonial Studies, edited by Graeme Huggan. And his talk tonight, then, is entitled, Africa's Diasporas, A Continental Longing for Form. Please give a warm welcome to Professor Atto Clayton. <laughs> Thank you, Joanna, for such a warm introduction. Um, it puts me in mind of uh, the end of uh, Disney's uh, uh, film, um, The Jungle Book, when uh, Baloo seems to have been killed by the tiger. And uh, they say a, a wonderful eulogy of his magnificence as a bear and uh, a citizen of the jungle and so on. But he's not dead. 
So he wakes up and says, continue, continue. I wish my mother had been here. <laughs> uh, now, as uh, Joanna mentioned, this is uh, the preliminary uh, reflections on a chapter I'm writing for. Yes. This, uh, this is a preliminary reflection on something I'm, I'm writing currently for the Oxford Handbook of Postcolonial Studies, uh, edited by Graham Hagen. So I would welcome um, questions, queries, criticisms, because it will all help for me to, to improve the, the, the document. Now let me, let me share with you a number of apparently unrelated events that have taken place over the past decade and that helped to provide a general background to the discussion today. First of all, in 2005, the African Union declared its African diaspora the sixth region of the continent. So in addition to North, West, East, and Central Africa, the African Union has now declared uh, the African diaspora the sixth region of the continent. Two, the current chairperson of the Commission of the African Union is a, a gentleman by name of Jean Ping of mixed Chinese and Gabonese parentage. Among Jean Ping's many distinctions was persuading Hu Jintao, President of China, to visit Gabon as part of Jintao's 12-day eight-nation tour of Africa in 2004. And for, for Africanists, the, the real mystery is that Gabon is such a tiny country that uh, it almost does not appear on any maps in China. And yet, Jinping managed to, to persuade Jintao to, to go and visit. Three, there are more African-born Africans migrating to the United States annually since 1970 than during the entire 400-year period of slavery. I, I first saw this quite startling fact uh, posted on Barack Obama's campaign website when he was contesting for the Democratic Party presidential nomination in 2008. Now, this was no ordinary piece of trivia because, in fact, the, uh, Obama's mixed parentage had helped to energize the African diasporas in, uh, in the United States to participate in the political process in a way that they had not done before. So for example, in Ohio, which as you will recall, was one of the key swing states, the 25,000 Nigerians in Akron, Ohio, uh, volunteered for the Obama campaign and went knocking door to door to help him uh, get uh, reelected. This is not to speak of the over 100,000 Somalis in Minnesota, Minneapolis, which is now considered the capital of Somalia outside of, of the continent. In fact, as, as, a, as a born and bred Ghanaian, I would be remiss if I didn't share with you a joke about Nigeria <coughs> that did the round. <coughs> that did the rounds <coughs> after George W. Bush's hanging Chad victory of 2000. It was, it was, it was circulated widely uh, that uh, <coughs> the reason why that particular American election was so controversial is that there are too many Nigerians in the USA anyway. <laughs> and so they have somehow managed to, to affect the political process. The fourth point though, fourth point though, 
is that the World Bank estimates that there are 30.6 million Africans currently living outside their home countries, 30.6 million, million Africans. France is the highest recipient of African migrants at 9%, followed amazingly by Ivory Coast at 8%. The US and the UK come way behind at 4% each. Now, we can go into a lengthy discussion of why 9% go to France and another 8% go to Ivory Coast. But the two figures actually tell us completely different uh, facts about migrations and diasporas. <clears throat> uh, five, a recent report released by the World Bank and the African Development Bank has uh, recommended that African governments should issue what they are calling African diaspora bonds. The World Bank report suggests that Africans outside their home countries have annual average savings of $40 billion, and that African gov governments might be able to raise up to $10 billion a year on the sale of such bonds to its various diasporas. Of course, even though the figures look fantastic, in reality, they are quite modest. Given their own estimates of the number of Africans, 30.6 million <coughs> resident outside their home countries, the World Bank uh, savings figures for Africans abroad suggest that uh, each uh, African abroad saves just over $100 a, a year, which is nothing at all, really. It's actually quite an embarrassment. Finally, the British, the black British musician Dizzy Rascal was born in London to a Nigerian father, but for most of his life was brought up in a single-parent household by his Ghanaian mother. Uh, called Priscilla. And yet, there is nothing in his public performances whatsoever to suggest that Dizzy Rascal is not of Caribbean descent. He seems to me to be culturally more Caribbean than African, something that places him in line with black youth in London, Toronto, and several other Western metropolises in general, who are, are said to identify with Jamaican patois and other cultural forms, as opposed to anything African as such. Now, the African Union's this, the, the declaration of the diaspora as its sixth region is somewhat understandable, given the fact, as we have already noted from the World Bank figures, that the continent has gained a great deal from remittances and that this will continue to grow into the foreseeable future. However, it is also clear that both the African Union and indeed most of the economists who try to tap into the economic potential of the continent's widespread diasporas have a rather simplified idea of the term African diaspora. <clears throat> For the overarching invocation of an African ob uh, diaspora obscures the question of who is really an African in today's world and concomitantly how a diasporic African identity is to be defined. Unresolved questions of citizenship, indigeneity, cosmopolitanism and representation lurk worryingly just uh, beneath the surface of the AU's declaration and raise fundamental definitional and conceptual problems clearly not attended to by the declaration itself. One of the things that I, I hope to do today is to suggest that the different routes, what Americans call routes, what they mispronounce as routes, routes, 
<laughs> the different uh, routes by which Africans were dispersed in the diaspora actually produce not just different forms of black cultural identity, but in fact, different forms of identification with the African continent itself. And so in other words, there are, there are, there are serious uh, complications with assuming that because you are black, you identify with Africa, just to put it in layman's speech. <clears throat> the three uh, root metaphors that um, seem to be pertinent to this discussion are the maritime, the plantation, and the trade route metaphors. Uh, sadly, I shall only have time to, to look at the first two, the maritime and the plantation uh, routes, with the third perhaps being picked up during question time. I'm not myself, I must admit, satisfied with describing these in terms of metaphors, but I settle on the term because its Greco-Latin etymology originally meant to carry or transfer over, uh, which I think captures neatly the transfers that take place in the formation of different diasporic identities. These three uh, root metaphors are not to be seen as mutually exclusive, but rather as interdependent and interanimating. Uh -huh. I have a, a, a priestly orientation also. <laughs> um, these three root metaphors are not to be seen as mutually exclusive, but rather as interdependent and interanimating. Most of my comments will be of a somewhat uh, historical nature and will concentrate predominantly on the period between the early 1800s to roughly the 1960s, the period in which I would like to suggest the current forms of diaspora, diasporic African and black identities came to be consolidated in the ways in which we, rec we recognize them in the world today. In other words, I'm saying that the 1800 to the 1960 was the formation of the identities that we can now see as diasporic black identities. As a starting point, we ought to draw a methodological distinction between dispersions and diasporas. Not all dispersions lead to diasporas. <clears throat> For example, the current dispersions that have taken place in Libya and the Ivory Coast due to the respective political turmoil, the, the, term, the, respect, the term, political turmoil in the two the respective countries may not necessarily lead to diasporas as such. The conversion of dispersal into diasporas is best illustrated with the examples of the Tutis. Uh, that were displaced into Uganda and Tanzania over a uh, roughly 25-year period from the 1970s. And the three million Afghani Pashtuns that were displaced into, into Pakistan during the resistance uh, against uh, Russia from 1979 to 1989. Both displaced populations, that is the Tutis and the, the Pashtuns, uh, were placed in camps in East Africa in the case of the Tutis and uh, around Peshawar in the case of the Pashtuns in Pakistan. Now certain historical conditions were to convert these two originally largely refugee groups, dispersed refugee groups, into, into a strong uh, ethnopolitical uh, diasporas. This is the key thing. 
the Tutsis and the, the, the Taliban. The Taliban, which is predominantly Pashtun-oriented, and the Tutsis uh, com were converted into an ethno-political diaspora, one originally they were just uh, refugees. <clears throat> For a diaspora to emerge, a number of conditions have to be met. These include the time depth of dispersion and settlement. You need time to become a diaspora. Uh, the time depth of dispersion and settlement in other locations. The development of a myth of the homeland, and the emphasis is on myth as opposed to any reality. The development of a myth of the homeland the attendant ambiguation of responses to both homeland and host nation. In other words, the myth produces not certainty but alienation. It's the alienation that, that, that gives the, the myth uh, salience and longevity, not, not any confirmation of fact. Uh, also, the evolution of, of class segmentation in the diaspora. So class segmentation and class conflict. Uh, within a given uh, uh, population in the diaspora. And the ways in which contradictions among the varying class segments end up reinforcing different forms of material and emotional investment in an utopian ideal of homeland. Sometimes the utopian impulse serves to, serves to place the quest for the homeland in the vicinity of an active nationalism, but not always. As is, as is the case in the well-known, as, 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 as we find in the well-known case of Israel. But the stake in a specialized homeland is not always consonant with the interests of a diaspora. In other words, the desire for a homeland may not necessarily produce a specialized, the idealization is what is significant. The idealization, the alienation that, that comes with it is what is more significant for, for, for determining how diasporic a not necessarily that they want to actually actualize a, a material diaspora. It is a YouTube, utopian idealization that gives the homeland ultimate salience within diasporic consciousness, whether this ensues in a return to homeland movement or not. Finally, a diaspora, whether African or otherwise, must not be seen as a discrete entity, but rather as formed by a series of often contradictory convergences of peoples, ideas, and even cultural orientations, which is something that I'm going to, to try and unpack here today. This last point raises a significant methodological implication as it determines in a fundamental way the, the manner by which we delimit a research field. That is to say, if you, you consider a population group a, 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 a discrete uh, a group entity as opposed to made up of convergences, the kinds of questions that you pose will be completely different. Therefore, the answers will be different. Now, the early modern period, I'm moving on, the early modern period was marked by several key phases of population dispersal. From the major, from, from the major European migrations that took place from the mid 15th century to the end of the 18th century, and the slave trade that overlapped with the period of Europe European dispersals. These were later to be followed by major uh, population movements in the colonial world itself from roughly the early 1800s to around 1960. But this time, the populations that were shifted were shifted between the colonial world itself. So not, not uh, from Europe to, to the New World, 
and from Africa to the New World. But between India and Africa and Malaysia and so on and so forth, Malaysia and South Africa and so on and so forth. The major dispersal of Jews from Europe from the late 19th century until the, the first half of the 20th forms another important population movement with the final major uh, phase being that of the movement of economic migrants and refugees from the global south to the global north. That's begun in the late 70s and is still ongoing. And in fact, each of these uh, major population dispersals have to be seen as impacting on one another. And most people, the scholars of, for example, the Jewish diaspora, who paid no attention whatsoever to the, to the European diasporas uh, uh, in the 15th and 16th, 17th centuries, or uh, they don't pay any attention to the, the uh, major population movements from, from the global south to the global north. My argument is that it's important to have a, a holistic and a total picture because actually there are patterns that uh, are replicated in the different uh, population movements. In the earliest phase of population dispersals from Europe, dispersal was sometimes deployed as a handy instrument of demographic control within the continent itself, especially with regard to the regulation of race, poverty, and crime. Thus, for example, whereas West Africa had long been considered unsuitable for a penal colony in favor of Australia, a settlement was established in Sierra Leone for London's black poor. So black people were shipped from London to Sierra Leone between 1786 and 1791. And poor black, uh, London's poor black, were subsequently joined by what is called in the literature the Black Nova Scotians. The Black Nova Scotians were demobilized uh, African American slaves who had fought on the on the past on the on the side of the Royalists and had been promised land in Canada in Nova Scotia. So they migrate to Nova Scotia. The land does not materialize, and they find themselves in Sierra Leone. So those, this is between 1787 and 1792. Uh, Sierra Leone will feature again later in our discussion today, but suffice it to note now that for much of the 18th century, the country was a stronghold for pirates. It took until late into the 18th century for the Royal Navy to completely secure the trade routes around the coast of Sierra Leone. And the question of piracy and ships will, will become salient uh, uh, a little bit later. As Linebaugh and Redeker show in their book, the many-headed hydra. Sailors, tired of the harsh conditions and the slaving ships, often abandoned their merchant vessels to sail under the black flag, with Sierra Leone and Madagascar being the most favored pirate locations on the African continent. The, the resolution of issues of poverty in Britain through the movement of segments of its own population was not limited exclusively to the plight of, of the black poor but included the dispersal of vagrant children to Australia, South Africa, and, and the Americas. So as early as 1618, 100 what they call vagrant children uh, were, were arrested in London, uh, rounded up, and transported to the colony of Virginia. They became indentured uh, labor, laborers, labor, laborers, and actually the conditions under which they suffered was akin to slavery. People have written on this. Between... Uh, 
the 1620s to about 1925, over 150,000 children were so transported from the United Kingdom to different parts of the world. This is one of the scandals of, of colonialism, which is not uh, at, uh, touched upon. <coughs> now, even though imperial historians such as uh, John Darwin and several other, others have argued that colonial policy was often confused and unsystematic, it is still the case that the British created and executed conditions for the transfer of major chunks of population during the colonial period and between different regions of empire. In fact, I would like to suggest that colonialism relied essentially on the instrumentalization of population dispersal as a key component of colonial governmentality. Whether with the direct establishment of colonial and uh, administrative and bureaucratic arrangements, such as in much of Africa, India, and Southeast Asia, or in the context of, uh, on the context of settler colonialism, such as in Australia, Canada, and Latin America, or uh, in that of colonialism in post-plantation societies, economies, Sri Lanka, Jamaica, and Malaysia, Colonial governmentality involved the creation of conditions for the steady dispersal of populations, some of which came to coalesce into diasporas. And in several instances, such as in the indentured labor policies from the 1830s, population dispersal was systematic and designed to meet particular labor uh, and economic ends. Now, <coughs> What we come to, so the first of our route metaphors, the maritime route. Now, Paul Gilroy's suggestion in the Black Atlantic that the circulation of ideas and activists on slave and merchant ships provided the crucible for cosmopolitan forms of consciousness, I think it's, it's, a, it's a, a quite a, a productive uh, idea. And in fact, it's supported by many uh, maritime scholars. Because the thing is that it was not just the ships themselves that formed the crucibles, but the ports uh, at which the ships were obliged to trade and to land also were impacted by, by the cultures that had been incubated in the ships. The best example I can think of is our own Liverpool in here. Nowhere is, more evident, is this more evident than the history of blacks in Liverpool. Genealogically varied, this community dates roughly from the middle of the 18th century. After the abolition of slavery and beginning in roughly the 1870s, shipping firms in Liverpool were to hire West and East, African, East Africans in great numbers, uh, along with Africa. And by the way, this was tied to the steam engine. They needed black people to, to fill the, the, and do the, the really hard jobs. So there's, there's a, t a technological reason also. Um, uh, so they hired uh, West and East Africans in great numbers, along with Afro-Caribbeans, demobilized Indian soldiers called Laskas and Chinese, along with Arabs and Somali seamen. By the beginning of the 20th century, Liverpool had come to dominate the British trade with, with, with West Africa, and indeed much of the colonial world. Uh, Liverpool was the place, it was awash uh, with wealth. Estimates are that up to a third of the labor force on, on British ships from 1901 to the 1950s, or roughly 66,000 men, uh, were from the regions just mentioned, West, East Africa, Somalia, and so on. 
It was a general practice at the time that seamen would settle on shore to await a new consignment of goods. But it was not unusual for large numbers of such seamen to simply jump ship and await either better conditions on, on different ships. In other words, they would change ships or, or just to, to mingle with the local population and just settle down. Uh, given that the seamen in Liverpool uh, from different parts of the empire, as we just mentioned, um, settled down and entered different forms of amorous relationships with white women, typically poor Irish women, who were themselves a long-standing diasporic community in Liverpool, which we can also go into. So these, these black seamen consorted. They had a, 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 a sexual congress, as one historian put it. They, they had a mutually beneficial sexual congress. <laughs> Uh, uh, the seamen introduced a sexual dynamic into metropolitan Britain whose results uh, subsequently came to raise serious problems for colonial policy. Um, uh, so there was, there was a lot of racism also. By 1919, in 1919, there was a huge uh, race riot in Liverpool, Cardiff, in several port, port, port towns, Liverpool and Cardiff predominantly. And it was very bloody, a, a black a, a black, a, a Jamaican called uh, Charles Wooten was killed. Now, after that, the uh, colonial, the Home Office, not the colonial office, uh, offered these black seamen uh, passage, that they would pay them passage to go back to their various countries. Unfortunately, uh, many of these men had married white women, and so they, they, they pleaded that uh, passage be also paid for their white wives which the uh, Home Office and then subsequently the Colonial Office flatly refused. And the argument, uh, amazingly, uh, this is, is uh, 1919, uh, uh, amazingly was that uh, it was not meat, it was not appropriate, it was not meat, uh, to have a, a poor white woman go and live among the, in the colonies and uh, expose the colonial enterprise to uh, derision. In other words, if poor white women went to live with these seamen who were anyway poor uh, uh, in their home countries, it would uh, be a form of denigration of white power. And this is written. This is, this is explicit. The, the, the letters are all. It was, it was quite fascinating. Every imaginable effort was exerted to prevent the men from, from going with their wives, to the point where there's a classic case, very fascinating case of a, a white woman who disguised herself as a man to go and join her husband in Nigeria. <coughs> now, it is the docking of the now iconic. Uh, most of these uh, early uh, black uh, immigrants into Liverpool and other port cities were men. And as I've already mentioned, there was a necessary uh, 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 relationship with, with, with white, often poor white Irish women. It was only, uh, it, sorry, it is with the docking of the now iconic Empire Windrush uh, at Tilbury in 1948, carrying 492 passengers, that marked a shift in the cultural tide of blacks in the UK. From the 1950s, more women began migrating from the Caribbean, Africa, and Asia into Britain, and to also change the gender dynamic 
of this black constituency. By the way, there's, there's also a whole uh, discussion we can open into mixed race children, especially in Liverpool, and the, the moral panics that these mixed race children caused uh, in the definition of, of both whiteness and blackness. Liverpool and other colonial ports like it then become significant portals through which we might examine various vectors of both black identity and British identity, because in the particular case of, of these port towns, the two are actually uh, inseparable. However, there is a question that begs to be answered, and which is, to what extent can we claim that the blacks of Liverpool identify with Africa? Because this, this is the question that would be of interest to the drafters of the AU's declaration. To what degree is it possible to speak of this community as African in any way, as opposed to simply a black diaspora? There is no straightforward way in which we can speak of a singular identification of black Liverpool with Africa. Rather, I suspect, it is better to speak of multiple identifications of blackness, some of it, some of it forged within British itself, but fed heavily from the cultural input of the American civil rights movement and from the culture of the Caribbean. Caribbean cultural forms have arguably, be, arguably been the most influential single factor in the formation of black identities, uh, not just in Liverpool, but in other uh, parts of black Britain. Reggae, for example, has been so powerful that it has managed to produce utterly contrasting and yet now has taken to be classically British styles, marked on the one hand by UB40 and on the other by Steel Pulse. Formed in Birmingham in 1975 and fronted mainly by, by, by two white uh, brothers, UB40 has helped to globalize a particular brand of, of uh, reggae romantic ballad that seemed to have absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with Africa, with African culture. Contrast the UB40 to Steel Pulse, also formed in Birmingham in 1978, but which has been unremittingly pan-Africanist from the start. So UB40, these are black British uh, musicians drawing from, from, from uh, uh, Caribbean culture and uh, producing a version of, of typical uh, 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 black uh, uh, music, one which has nothing whatsoever, I think, to do with African culture the other which is Pan-Africanist. In fact, uh, add to this the fact that the dominant black voices in the UK over the past 30 or so years have been people such as Stuart Hall, Paul Giroir himself, Trevor Nelson, Sir Trevor MacDonald, uh, and Benjamin Zephaniah, all of whom are Caribbean, of Caribbean extraction. And, and this registers the fact that black British identification with Africa is somewhat tenuous, and this takes us back to Dizzy Rascal. It's not for nothing. There are very good reasons why Dizzy Rascal appears to all. Even his father is Nigerian, his mother is, is he was brought up by a Ghanaian mother. He, he seems to me he's Jamaican. In fact, there are other reasons that we might adduce for the for the dominance of of Caribbean culture in Black Britain, but uh, we'll have to set that aside for another time. <coughs> for very good reasons. And now I move to the plantation uh, root metaphor. For very good reasons, by far the greatest emphasis in studies of the black diaspora has been placed on the effects of plantation slavery and its aftermath. 
most scholars of, of the Black Atlantic uh, dispersals uh, agree that uh, African retentions, that Af retentions on African culture were remained uh, within uh, the, the New World. So th there's no quarrel there. The problem, the problem arises when you ask how. So it's agreed that African retentions were evident in, in New World culture. The problem is how did these African retentions uh, manifest themselves? Now, uh, the, the, the Jewish scholar Melville Herskovitz, the founder of the African Studies Association and his followers, were to argue forcefully that the African cultures of the American South, Cuba, Brazil, and the Caribbean islands revealed certain African cultural fe features that made them decisively an African diaspora. Hmm? And, and, and Herskovitz is, is a big uh, 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 person in this field. However, it seems to me that the most uh, interesting scholarly adjudication of the question of how is actually provided by, uh, by uh, Laurent Matori, uh, who, whose book won the Herskovitz Award in 2005. And the title of the book is The Black Atlantic Region. Sorry, The Black Atlantic Religion. Maturi is distinctive for designing a thoroughly transnational model of cultural exchange, and a cultural exchange between West Af the West African coast and the New World. In his case, specifically uh, Afro-Brazilian Bahia and Lagos of the, uh, of the late 1890s. Though his focus is predominantly on the Afro-Brazilian Candomblé, because he he's, he's, uh, 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 works on scholar of religion, the conclusions that he draws have suggestive resonances for thinking about Africa and its diasporas more generally. He suggests, and these are the key points, he suggests, first of all, that we see Africa and the New World in terms of a coevalness. Most scholars of the New World assume that somehow Africa was frozen in time, that, that culture was produced only in the New World, and somehow Africa was outside of history. This guy, Matori says that's, that's a, a misperception. So first of all, the Africa and the New World have to be seen in terms of a coevalness, historical coevalness. In other words, history was not frozen in Africa during the course of slavery. Second, he insists on seeing the creation of African cultures in the New World as the product of active human agency uh, that is fully conscious of its historicity as opposed to merely being the reflex reproduction of nostalgia for a lost continent. That these people were not just reflexively, uh, as a, uh, uh, impulsively producing culture. They had to work with instruments, all of which were not under their control. Third, and perhaps the most dramatic proposition that Maturi puts forward, is that not only the, the cultural entrepreneurs in, Afro, in the Afro-Brazilian context actively and self-consciously produce an African culture, but that the production, this production, had the effect of, of generating an idea of, 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 of culture inside of Africa itself. So this is, this is very, so it's not just that, that uh, these uh, new world cultures were struggling to produce cultures, but as they produced cultures, the culture that produced went back to Africa to, to generate an idea of culture inside of Africa. The example he gives is uh, for this, this thesis 
of, of the mutual inter-animation of cultures in the New World and in and the West Coast of Africa is uh, Renaissance Lagos in roughly from the 1890s to 1930. Several convergences make themselves visible in the Lagos of the period, all of which go to show the transnational factors that fed into this colonial city. As, as Matori points out, as many as 8,000 manumitted slaves, freed slaves, left Bahia to come to West Africa uh, between 1822 and 1899. And a large number of these uh, ex-slaves uh, decided to come and settle in Lagos. The reason for this is that the British had already abolished slavery and were actively trying to, 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 to uh, de de demolish the, the shipping because slavery continued after the abolition. So it was the only safe haven that these freed slaves had. Those that made the mistake of returning, let us say, to Dahomey, which is on the border to the kingdom of Dahomey, some of them were made recaptives because the Dahomeyan kingdom was a, a big uh, slave uh, trading uh, kingdom. So first of all, uh, 8,000 of these uh, uh, freed slaves from Bahia returned to Lagos. Uh, no, to the West Africa, but, but, <coughs> but a heavy number of them to Lagos. By, by 1890, one in seven of the residents of Lagos was a returnee from Brazil or Cuba. Uh, these returnees contributed to the architectural and technical life of, of, of the city of Lagos and added to its cosmopolitan uh, bustle. Actually, as an aside, there are Brazilians also came to Ghana, which is where I come from. And they were, they were well noted. They introduced the, the eating of tomatoes into the Ghanaian diet. So it's a long and convoluted story. But most Ghanaians put tomato in their food, but it's the Brazilians who brought it. Secondly, they're very good they're tailors. The, the, very, the best tailors in Accra to this day are from the Brazilian families. And thirdly, they're also very good carpenters. Yeah. So, so this is, this, this is, uh, this is just, just an aside. <coughs> At any rate, the second um, uh, inflow into Renaissance, uh, uh, Renaissance Lagos of the 1890s following was um, the freed, let me go about it in the, uh, the different way. After the abolition of slavery, slavery still continued. So the Royal Navy committed itself to, to basically arresting uh, ships and freeing the slaves. Most of the slaves that were freed were sent to the colony of Sierra Leone. I said Sierra Leone was featured again. Now, Sierra Leone by the late uh, 19th century, so by the late, uh, uh, late 1700s, had a very active missionary community. So when these uh, uh, freed slaves were sent to Sierra Leone, immediately they were put in the hands of the missionaries who proceeded to educate, to Christianize and to educate them. Uh, several of these, by the 1840s, 1850s, several of these they were called by the Nigerians when they returned to, to Lagos, Saros, after Syria, the corruption of Sierra Leone, they were called Saros. These Saros were highly educated, Christianized, and they, they, they returned and proceeded to uh, make themselves useful. Uh, among other things, they translating the Bible into local languages, starting up newspapers and reading groups, entering into commerce and trade, and generally providing some of the most skilled members of the by then incipient British colonial civil service. They were all, uh, because the Saros were highly educated. 
However, the most important thing which Maturi notes is that it is actually these returning Saro's slaves, freed slaves, in other words, returning their sporics, who were responsible for forging what we have now come to call the Yorubas. Because uh, before uh, the 1890s, what we now call the Yorubas did not exist. They were, they were just a bunch of autonomous uh, uh, ethnic groups or tribes. So they have the Ekiti, the Ijebu, uh, the Oyos, and so on. In fact, their language were, was mutually comprehensible, but not quite. They had lots of uh, differences in language and so on. It was the translation of the Bible by, by the renowned bishop, Ajayi Crowder, who actually deserves a, a pyramid named after him uh, somewhere in London, hopefully. <laughs> a bishop, Ajayi Crowder, the first Anglican bishop of Nigeria, yeah, he was phenomenal. Uh, bishop Ajayi Crowder, the first Anglican bishop of, of Nigeria, and one of the most gifted translators and thinkers that Africa has ever produced. It was Bishop Crowder, along with the Reverend Samuel Johnson, another uh, Saru, who were to produce a pan-Yoruba pan, pan identity, which we now call Yoruba. Uh, before them, Yoruba did not exist. They existed as tribes. Um, the, the things that they did was they translated the Bible into Yoruba language. They produced a unified orthography. This was fundamental, a unified orthography plus um, a primus. Agriari uh, uh, Crowder actually wrote a grammar, a grammar of the Yoruba, which gradually was incorporated into school so that all people who were subsequently to call themselves Yorubas were schooled by the primer produced by uh, Bishop Ajayi Crowder. In other words, it was these returnee Saros who were really diasporic uh, 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 Yorubas or Nigerians or blacks uh, who were responsible for producing the Yoruba that we know today. Matori's point then is that not only was, was, uh, uh, were the, the, the ex-slaves of Bahia producing a culture, they returned to help to build the culture that we now know as the locus, is one of the locus classicus of African studies is the Yorubas. But the Yorubas would not have, have, have become Yoruba without the input from both the uh, Afro-Brazilian returnees and the Saros. Now, I find Matori's thoughts on the, on the recursive production of African cultures uh, highly productive because as a model for understanding the process of cultural transfer between Africa and, and its various diasporas, it is, it is first of all, I've already mentioned, it is very transnational. It speaks of convergences, and it speaks of coeval agency. So it's not one, trans Africa does not transfer culture to the new world. It, it cuts both. I think this is a, a very fascinating uh, idea. However, we are obliged to ask a similar set of questions to those we posed uh, after our discussion of Liverpool. To what degree can we assume that the Afri Brazilians of today identify with Africa? And how far do Yorubas in today's Nigeria even think of the Afro-Brazilian counterparts as diasporic brothers? The, question, the answer, unfortunately, is not positive. One thing for certain is that what Matori describes as the mutual co-production of the cultures of the New World and of Yoruba land is hardly even mentioned by Yoruba, Yoruba scholars today. 
So, so what about the, the ordinary? People don't even know of this. <laughs> In fact, the identification, I would argue, between Brazil and Africa is not so much with, with old Renaissance Lagos, but rather with Angola, yeah, where, where uh, Brazil has the highest investment in all Africa. The highest Brazilian investment is in, uh, is in Angola, not even in Nigeria, among uh, their brethren. But once we think of the relationship between Angola and Brazil, and Brazil another uh, can of worms opens up. Because in fact, the relationship between Brazil and Angola is not the relationship of the circulation of, of cultural blackness but it is rather the relationship between the ruling Criollo elites, that is to say, the white Portuguese elites of Angola are the ones who have established this highly productive and fertile relationship with, with Brazil. But the Criollo elites are a settler colony. They were, they were a settler colonialism. And as a settler, col as a settler colony, they can be uh, studied uh, in the same breath as settler uh, colonists in Australia, South Africa. In other words, this is a, and we can go into, there's no time now to go into when a diasporic community convert, is converted into a settler colony. And one of the key features is that unlike uh, an ordinary Somalian uh, being displayed into Minnesota, the European colonists that went to, to Australia, South Africa, Canada, had a particular they were capitalists, or soon to be capitalists, because many of them were running from social devastation in Europe. Uh, the fire of London, uh, London's burning 1660s, uh, uh, religious persecutions, and so that led to a lot of population dispersal. But it didn't take long for them to convert themselves into capitalists. And as a capitalist, the first objective was the expropriation of land. A Somali will not appear in, in Minnesota and say, I'm going to take your land. <laughs> Very unlikely. <laughs> but whereas the European uh, migrants, very quickly, within uh, five decades, they proceeded systematically to expropriate uh, lands from, from the Aborigines and so on. And they also conscripted slaves to help them uh, in this enterprise. So, and then back to Angola, so that the relation between uh, Matori focuses our attention on this very, very fascinating relationship between the blacks of, uh, of uh, Bahia and Renaissance Lagos. But today, it's completely tenuous. It, it makes no sense, Not, neither in Lagos. In Brazil, it still makes sense because Yoruba land is the seat of cultural symbols. And he's king specifically of Candomblé. Yeah. So it's still the seat of cultural symbols, but it is not a space of diasporic yearnings in any way or form. Uh, the space, and therefore, because it's not the space of diasporic yearnings, it is also not the space of either emotional or material investment. The material investment is taking place in Angola and is between the Criollo elites and the elites, obviously, of the Portuguese-speaking elites, of course, of Brazil itself. Now, even though I mentioned that there was, there was a third uh, uh, root metaphor, which we cannot go into now. But if we have time, I would speak a little bit about the evolution of uh, 
African trade communities, African trading communities in China today, especially in Guangzhou, which is another uh, research area. It's, it's, it's fascinating what is happening among these African trade. But we, we are going to have to set this aside. Now, if the various African diasporas we have discussed thus far have any particular identification with Africa, this must, must ultimately be attributed more to the rise and fall of Pan-Africanism. In other words, I'm suggesting that Pan-Africanism is what produces the ideology which unifies all these diasporas. Uh, from Marcus Garvey's uh, ill-fated arrangements to repatriate, repatriate Africans from America back to Africa was only the start of a long and steady series of, of uh, ideological attachments to the continent. Uh, uh, um, the 1930s and 40s, for example, saw the emergence of what Francophone scholars would, would identify as negritude. Uh, Senghor and various others producing an idea about the uh, passion of Africa versus the reason of, of Europe. Of course, negritude uh, came under severe attack, especially from Anglophone Africa. Uh, Wolish Inger, for example, was famously to say that neg negritude it makes no sense because a tiger does not go about proclaiming its tigritude. It pounces. So all this negritude talk is all you know, uh, a ridiculous waste of time. Uh, the uh, uh, Pan-Africanism, however, was a driving ideology behind decolonization. So, for example, Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana was to declare that the, uh, in 1957, when, when Ghana was made independent, he was de declared publicly that the independence of Ghana was, uh, was meaningless, these are his words, without the total liberation of all of Africa. But he, 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 he was active, for example, in inviting uh, Pan-Africanist blacks from all over the world. George Padmore was to make a home in Accra. He, uh, uh, w. E. Du Bois was invited to, to Accra in 1961. The Americans promptly uh, uh, refused to renew his passport. So he died without an American uh, passport, basically. And um, uh, Nkrumah gave him a house and so on for him to work on the big uh, Africana encyclopedia. Du Bois died in Accra and is buried actually in Accra today at a place called the Du Bois uh, uh, Cultural, Cultural Center. Uh, Franz Fanon was to find himself in Accra as the guest of Kwame Nkrumah. Uh, George Padmore also, Kamau Brathwaite, and many others. However, uh, Pan-Africanism as an ideology, I think, began to lose its, its force uh, uh, as an ideology to, 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 to seal a form of identification among the various African diasporas when the experiment of nation-state formation in Africa began to fail. So with the rise of kleptocrats like Mobutu Seseku, uh, megalomaniac, you know, uh, brut brutal people like Idi Amin in Uganda, which of course was broadcast to the whole world. Uh, now we have Mugabe and so on. The identification with Africa, first of all, Pan-Africanism was dead. Because these guys were nationalists in the narrowest uh, 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 terms. So the, they were not conce concerned either with the, the welfare of the African continent, much less 
with the welfare of black peoples everywhere. The, in the heyday of uh, Pan-Africanism, Pan-Africanism was to inspire songs such as this. I have to play this. Sorry, well, how do I do it? <laughs> Sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for when, when some brilliant scientist will announce that you can take music intravenously. So I'll go for, for you know, 12 doses of Bob Marley straight up. <laughs> um, now, even, even when um, Bob Marley was, was singing this for the first time in 1976, and this was in the heyday of apartheid, where he speaks of Zambia, Mozambique, and Angola, even by 1976, we could argue that the ideals of Pan-Africanism had already uh, been, been destroyed. Uh, mainly because, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the Africa, many African countries had been hijacked by blatant kleptocrats whose only interest was uh, filling their own pockets uh, by brutal di dictators. The famines of, of Ethiopia and Somalia in the late 70s, early 80s did not help. In other words, Africa entered a period of, of, uh, of decline. Uh, the political environment was bad, and it coincided also with the rise in oil prices and various uh, forms of misplanning. Uh, Africa's condition was compounded also, uh, has to be said, by the IMF, uh, whose uh, bitter medicine in the, in the early 80s 
was led to the contraction of many African uh, state uh, regimes. Uh, by contraction, I mean uh, welfare. The, the welfareist idea, which had become dominant in Europe at least from 1945, was forced to retreat in, in many parts of Africa. And in fact, uh, state regimes were considered incompetent. They couldn't uh, manage their own, and definitely they couldn't attend to the needs of the poorest. In the, under these conditions, Pan-Africanism didn't seem to make sense. So even when uh, uh, Bob Marley is singing this in 1976 and he's asking all blacks to show an interest in Angola, Mozambique, and so on, Pan-Africanism uh, is, is on the wing. So in concluding, wh what status then does the AU's declaration have? We've already shown that uh, their, their interest seems predominantly uh, to be economic which is not a bad thing. They want to find ways and means of uh, attracting uh, African capital into Africa. The figures for remittances into the continent by, 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 by uh, African migrants is, is huge remittances. The, the thing is that most of these remittances go into non-productive uh, uh, sectors. So how do we channel, how does the AU consider channeling uh, these remittances into positive uh, avenues? I think, though, that the economic question cannot be separated from the cultural and also the ideological question. And when I say the cultural, uh, this, uh, the cultural question, what I mean is that the means by which Africa, Africa's, the black, the black diaspora, not the African diaspora, the black diasporas identify with Africa depends inherently on how Africa manages to show that it is conducting its own affairs properly. I have three kids, one at university now, and there is no reason why they should identify with the continent if everything that comes from the continent is about collapse or near collapse. I think it would be hard for me. Right now, the identification is, in a way, an identification really with their parents. <laughs> so they are identifying with Africa. The identification with Africa is really mediated via their parents. But when you think about it, this, this is a, a, a weak form of identification. They have to identify with Africa ideologically by themselves. So the first thing is Africa needs to, to manage its own affairs better. The second thing is the question of ideology. We need a new pan-Africanism that will inspire people like Bob Marley to, to sing you know, in the haze of marijuana about the freeing of the continent. Yes, in, in the haze of marijuana, he still said, let us free this continent. But we don't have that. You know, we have Dizzy Rascal. Who doesn't even bother to pretend that he's African? So, in other words, said uh, the, 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 we need the, the rise of a new. Perhaps we will not, we will not, we may not want to call it Pan-Africanism because Pan-Africans have had such a bad press. But a form of the identification has to be conscious and ideological, as opposed to merely at the level of sentiment. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Asa, for that inspiring and enlightening lecture. Asa has very kindly agreed to take some questions in the time that he has to catch his breath. <coughs>
me to think about some questions. I, I just can't resist pointing out this uh, charming coincidence yesterday in the Evening Standard. I don't know if you saw it, but uh, London's African Premier football players were given a, a special award ceremony uh, in London last night with the likes of Didier Drogba, Alex uh, Song and Asu Akuto. And um, according to one spokesman, they said they found London experience was so beautiful. Uh, apparently, quote, it is because we are allowed to be African. So, um, I don't know if you make that statement, allowed to be African. I think um, it's quite interesting, so much crossing. So, um, any questions or comments, uh, please, for our guest speaker? I'm just going to like to thank you because you articulate um, sometimes the internal conflict that more than one generation who were born on the soil don't identify with it and go back home to go in some cases like I do and don't identify with that. But my question is, um, why do you think um, there is such a strong, say, um, dominance of, say, the African-Caribbean culture and identity when it comes to being black British and people Okay, I actually, thank you for asking that question. I put in brackets <laughs> a provisional answer to that. Now, my, my answer is going to be somewhat speculative because, of course, I haven't done any research on this. But I think that it has to, we have to trace it back to the colonial cultures of the Caribbean, of the West Indies. The first thing, this is, there's a point that um, uh, the, the famous um, scholars of African-American culture, uh, uh, Price, Mintz, Sidney Mintz and Richard Price, they make a point in passing that precisely because uh, slave culture was so dehumanizing, any, uh, any gesture or act that could distinguish one human from another was celebrated by the black slave. In other words, the, the slant of a hat, the way that one walked, the way that one spoke, was seized upon and celebrated as a way, not of rebellion, but of, of this, a distinguishing mark of their humanity. What actually this speaks to is a certain inherent creativity in the Caribbean. And this creativity comes from the, the necessarily hybrid nature of, of the culture. Now, that hybridity has been converted, transformed into a global brand, you know, reggae, as we know. Uh, many people don't know this, but actually, rap music, which is considered to be a distinctively African-American mode, was first uh, popularized by two Jamaican DJs in New York. They started doing, uh, they, they ran a, a free club, and the DJs began rapping onto, into the music as they were going, the Jamaicans. So that's the first thing, creativity. But it was a creativity under duress, the first thing. The second thing is that uh, unlike uh, black Af African-born Africans, uh, I think the Caribbean culture produced a certain ambivalent attitude to land, to the land, as opposed to the landscape. There's a difference between an attachment to landscape and an attachment to land, because land it's an economic unit. But because these uh, uh, African descendants were slaves on the land, the attitude to the land, there, there was no uh, serious attachment to the land as such. To the landscape, yes, but to the land, no. Because the land was a unit of their uh, 
uh, oppression. That's the second, the, third, the, the second thing. The third thing is that uh, the Caribbean uh, culture produces a certain claim because they actually, and this has been shown, the economists have shown that the slave plantations, sugar plantations, etc., contributed a huge amount to the building of the UK economy. Huge. This, this has been computed and so on. So Caribbeans grow with this up with a sense that, you know what? It is our sweat and blood. Africans don't have the idea. Our sweat and blood has contributed to building this society. So it is our rightful claim to be here. It is not by accident that we are here. Now, the Africans have a, a, a different, there's no a few Africans who make that claim. Then the second thing is that the attachment, what I spoke about, the, the problematic attitude to land as opposed to landscape, does not feature in African consciousness. Most Africans have a straightforward attachment to land. In fact, little attachment to landscape, when you look at the representation, in literary representations, there are very few African writers who represent landscape. Meanwhile, Caribbean poets, uh, uh, Derek Walcott, any number of Caribbean poets are always uh, singing the praises of the landscape. Africans celebrate land, whether you're talking about uh, Chinua Achebe in Things Fall Apart and Arrow of God, or Wole Shoyinka and so on and so forth. They, they, they have a commitment to land as, as, a, as an economic uh, unit, but not so much in, in African writing, the only, by the way, I'm a literature professor, so pardon me. The, in African literature, the only person that consistently represents landscape is Kutsia in South Africa. He's consistently talking about landscape, panoramic views of the landscape and aestheticizing the landscape and so on. Black African writers normally talk about land and forget the landscape. The opposite pertains in, in Caribbean writing. Caribbean writers always talk about landscape all the time. The final thing is that in this uh, country, the Caribbean community um, were invited in specifically. I already mentioned the Empire Windrush. After the Second World War, the, 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 the country needed labor to help rebuild the, 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 the society. So they actively went and brought them in. So they, they, they were, it was different from, say, the later Africans who came, who were economic migrants merely. These were brought in to help. So the sense of, uh, of entitlement, what Stuart Hall says in one of his essays, that uh, you find a Caribbean who is completely penniless walking in London as if he owns the land. He hasn't got a penny. It's because he hasn't got a penny, that's why he, he wants to walk like that. That, this is my, my yes, provisional answer. integration of Creole culture Back to Africa. In 1968, 
up on the clear state ideology. It moved from an ideology of social movements to an ideology of states. And that's the headache we have today, that states, uh, states proclaim themselves as an African uh, and no African in many social movements. And I think Yerry called the AU uh, the Committee of Dictators. You know, they say we, they didn't say we the African people, they said we the heads of state. And I think that's the really great. Mm -hmm. I think the, the failure of African states did make things worse, mm -hmm. but I think this shift from a movement of, of the diasporic social movements to one that became a, a, a state is an ideology. Mm. Uh, yeah, I think, I think you're right, except that the movement, in a way, from a diasporic uh, social formation movement to state was in a way, it was almost a historical necessity because as we well know, uh, these uh, 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 black dias diasporics had no status in, for example, in black America. They had no status. So the, the new liberation movements in Africa, which were of course articulated in state form, held a big attraction for these, uh, these uh, black diasporics. It was for the first time the idea that actually black people can not only can they free themselves from from the shackles of oppression they can actually govern they can, they can they have presidents and prime ministers and so on and so forth so in a way it's, it's almost a historical necessity that the social movement becomes articulated in a state form however the articulation was completely uneven the the words that uh, bob marley sings are actually the words of the ethiopian emperor hill selassie he, Hill Selassie delivers a magnificent speech, I think, in the, in the mid-30s. And it was that speech that uh, uh, Bob Marley took. It is unevenly articulated. So Egypt of, of Nasser, Nasser's Egypt, uh, Kwame Nkrumah's Ghana, uh, uh, Nyerere in Tanzania, and Ethiopia uh, of Hill Selassie are Pan-Africanist I, I, the the, the, the Pan-Africanist ideas animate the, the, the state systems. But the same could not be said about Nigeria in the same period, or Malawi, another really problematic uh, state. It could not be said. So what then happens is that, that it is not just the, the articulation in state form, but that the articulation is uneven across the continent. A few bright uh, lights are, are trying to express it. Another thing I think that led to the sinking of Pan-Africanism was that it fell victim to the Cold War, Cold War politics. Nkrumah, it has now been shown, was uh, overthrown by the CIA. The CIA plotted, because he was left-leaning, he was, uh, was uh, lefty, uh, and of course he introduced uh, some unhappy uh, 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 draconian uh, uh, policies and so on. So what did they do? They just uh, took him out. The same thing happened in the Belgian Congo, uh, Patrice Lumumba, and so on. So the Pan-Africanism, which already had been articulated within the state form, also fell victim to Cold War politics. Uh, and this helped to uh, uh, put an extra nail uh, in, the, in the head. But I think that, in a way, we, we... I see what you mean about social movement versus state ideology. But um, I would like to see a more robust, perhaps um, a dialectical relationship between because both are moribund now. There's no Pan-Africanist social, diasporic social movement that we can speak of. Uh, everyone is busy shopping. <laughs>
Okay, let, let me clarify. The, the people we call Yorubas now are formed of various uh, ethnic groups. We have the Ekiti, the Ijebu, the Oyos, and so on. Up to the late uh, 19th century, that is how they regarded themselves. They, they, they didn't consider themselves a pan-Yoruba identity and pursue a particular form of actually ethno-nationalism. Within the Nigerian context, the Yorubas came together to pursue ethno-nationalist uh, ethno ideals that would serve the interests of all Yoruba lands, so not just Oyos or Ijebus and so on. The argument that Matori makes, and he's not the only one who has made this argument, he, he adds something which other people have not added, is that it is the work of cultural entrepreneurs, of the cultural elite. Uh, Crowther is fundamental, along with, uh, with uh, uh, Samuel Johnson and others, who come to produce the ideal of a pan eurobite So no longer is it enough for an Oyo man to think that he's merely Oyo, or an Ekiti man to think that he's merely Ekiti. By the start of the 20th century, they all considered themselves as Yorubas as opposed to merely Oyo or Ijebu and so on. And this was a product of, of Crowther, the translation of the Bible, uh, writing of grammars and so on, and gradually feeding this into the educational system. Uh, of course, we, we might argue that even without them, a pan Yoruba identity might have been produced. But that is a counter. We don't know uh, because they intervene in the process of history. So it's not that the, the, the Ekitis and Ijebus did not exist before the 1890s. But the idea that we are all one nation, that one did not exist before uh, Crowther and others. There are many wars, rumors of war, uh, famine, uh, the decimation of, uh, of uh, you know, uh, env environmental degradation, uh, economics, and so on. The odd thing is that, and all these have been documented, the odd thing is that these facts, religious persecution also in, in a place like Sudan, religious persecution between North and South, Christians and Muslims, has led to a lot of... of uh, the odd thing is that all these factors, are, each of these factors I've mentioned, whether it be war, uh, social collapse, and so on, are exactly the same factors that led to the mass, mass migration out of Europe uh, from the 15th centuries. So for example, in London of the 1660s, the fire of London is estimated to have gutted, uh, to have rendered over 13,000 people homeless. This is, we're talking of uh, 1666. Uh, the the uh, bubonic plague of the early 17th century decimated lots of people and, and they, they had to leave. Add to that, there was serious uh, religious persecution, not just in, in, in Britain, but across, uh, across Europe. So the motivation, there was land hunger, basically. The land, uh, the social forms were inadequate. So there was, there was a drive to leave, and some people, the, the initial people who left, left Basically, it was a question of survival. In the case of the Irish, which is slightly different, the famine uh, of, of from the 1840s led to mass migration from Ireland. However, when you take all these factors, 
The same factors are replicated in today's Africa. The same factors that led to the mass migrations from Europe are replicated in Africa today. So it's not that Africa is somehow exceptional or anomalous, historically anomalous, in the fact that what are all these Somalis or Nigerians, for God's sake, going to the United States for? There's nothing anomalous about that. It is, it is the, the fact that the gap between the 16th and 17th century has obliterated, and of course, you don't see this written about in the Daily Mail. Hmm? They will not write about what I'm telling you in the Daily Mail. You know, so these, uh, uh, you know, they're bringing typhoid fever into our country. The Europeans, were, they introduced measles into Mexico and decimated the Aztecs. Within 30 years, more than 90% of the Aztec population had died because they didn't know what measles was. You're not going to read this in the Daily Mail, are you? Mauritius, I have in mind. Well, Mauritius is really fascinating because Mauritius um, in um, the 1830s, the uh, East India Company uh, focused on use Mauritius as a convict colony to ship out uh, India, basically Indians who were recalcitrant, recalcitrant and troublesome. Uh, over 30,000 uh, Indian convicts were sent to different parts of the world, but heavily to Mauritius. And in fact, that was the seeding of uh, Mauritian society. Also, Malays, a lot of Malays were also, Malay convicts were shipped into, into, into Mauritius, and some of them also found themselves in uh, South Africa, in, in, Cape, in Cape Town, today's Cape Town. Now, what we find in... Um, in particularly Mauritius, is that the demographic character of Mauritius is not dissimilar from, say, the demographic character of Barbados or Trinidad or Guyana. In fact, the political rivalries in Mauritius can be very safely compared with the political rivalries in Guyana. And that is because the populations that were brought, and this is what one of the things I mentioned about the population dispersal as an instrument of colonial governmentality. What then happens is that Mauritius is uh, a divided, internally divided, because uh, the 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 uh, the uh, Indian, you know, the descendants of the Indians are the stronger, you know, they, they are the dominant. But there are also Africans uh, in there, compounded by the fact that Mauritius uh, was French for a while. I mean, just to complicate matters a little bit. Uh, and to add to that, they produced a special Creole language, which they call Creole, uh, Creole, uh, which which is for a long time Creole was was denigrated. But it's the Indians who speak Creole, the Africans speak something else. So the answer to your question is that Mauritius is accidentally African. That's the only way I can say. <laughs> it's accident, but by the accident of geography, it is African. But actually, its identity is so hybridized and so fractious that uh, it's hard to, to, to it's, it's, a, it's a diasporic culture as such.
Okay, well, let me come to the, the, the uh, World Cup. Because the, there's a concept that a, a compatriot of mine, Anthony Appiah, has called um, recreational identities. In Toronto, for example, you don't know the Irish until St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> then all of a sudden, boom, everyone is Irish. <laughs> they drink a lot, they're all in green, they're all happy, and so on. After St. Patrick's Day, they all vanish. They become, you know, straightforward, standard, you know, upper Canadians. The World Cup is really fascinating because of the focalization that it brings to bear on different forms of identity. So, for example, it was great that it was held in, in Africa, but not so great that Ghana was kicked out at the wrong time. <laughs> because the, the effect, if we had gone, proceeded further, was just amazing. And, and I don't even want to tell you what the effect would have been, even financially. Because among other things, they could have... Um, uh, renegotiated their Puma, because they, they are sponsored by, I'm telling you seriously, the, 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 these guys, the English team uh, uh, is paid, I think it's 40 million uh, uh, pounds a year to wear the Reebok uh, on their, they didn't even do it, they were whacked by Germany for God's sake. If Ghana had proceeded further, they could have gone to Puma and said, look at the English, you are giving them 40 million, talk to us. <laughs> But the point is that these recreational identities, they have uh, many other effects that are not visible to us. Uh, for, for those that are conscious about the value of culture and the, and the mode of cultural identification, these uh, provide very good platforms for producing, because it's a positive thing. Everyone felt the, good, good, the feel-good factor is fundamental. In terms of your other question, what will for, you know, in a way I've, I've said that Black uh, British identification is more with, with uh, the Caribbean. This is, I think, generally true. But this is true at the macro level, at the larger level. At, at a, a, a lower level, there are lots of uh, African communities who uh, you know, persist in completely African rituals of, uh, for, for example, the naming, what they call naming ceremonies or funerals, or uh, marriages, where you suddenly see the eruption of completely African modes of being. And these take place, like every weekend, there are any number of Africans who gather together to be African, you know, with their children. So this is also ongoing, but it is at an atomized level. You know, it's not at the level that will interest the, the Daily Mail again. It is not at that level yet. It is, not, it is at the level, shall we say, of sentiment as opposed to ideology. Caribbean culture has entered the level of ideological identification. Even I identify with Bob Marley, because the guy is good. <laughs> whereas, uh, whereas, so, uh, many we, we cannot, we cannot um, you know, pursue any social engineer. It just doesn't work that way. As I said at the end of the talk, Africa has to do something to alter its image. It has to be systematic, in a systematic alteration of the image of Africa as a place where good ideas go to die. This is, this is what, which is actually not entirely true, because there the are very fascinating things happening in Kenya, for example. I was telling, I was telling Joanna that uh, Kenya has more bloggers, perhaps slightly lower than Cairo now, in all of Africa, Kenya is the seat of blogging. 
there are Kenyan uh, techies who are uh, de designing new apps, which you will soon find on your iP I uh, available on your iPad. I mean, incredible things, uh, apps to 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 check the to verify the validity of medicines that you buy, for example, uh, on the on the continent. So things are happening. There's, there's different social forms. I mean, women are, are doing amazing things in many parts of Africa, in Ghana, there's uh, social uh, uh, entrepreneurs and so on. But it doesn't completely add up. There's, there's still a gap between the level of the politicians and the level of ordinary men. Not if you listen to UB40. <laughs> I, I, you know, it, it's a hard one because um, uh, um, Caribbean cultural, cultural forms, I think, are very... By the way, I've been repeating Caribbean, 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 and using you know, Jamaica. I've mentioned Jamaica, Trinidad. We should also remember what Cuba is doing. Cuba is exporting salsa to the world. Salsa is everywhere. Singapore, there are salsa clubs. In Singapore, there's, there's a, uh, an Asian Pacific Salsa Congress in South Korea. Uh, just uh, la uh, in April last month, there was a big international salsa congress held in Dakar. Uh, uh, so, so and, and in London, salsa is everywhere. So salsa has become a kind of cultural meme. <coughs> Every 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 uh, metropolitan environment has a certain relationship with salsa, and this is Cuban. This is also an island uh, in the Caribbean. So uh, so far, I've been speaking as if it's just uh, the Anglo-Caribbean island, but that's not entirely true. Now, whether they are Pan-Africanists, some of them have been Pan-Africanists. Uh, Steel Pulse is a great example. Uh, the band still pulls, Bob Marley also, and a few others. But it's, not, it's, just, it's just that there's a certain creative energy to Caribbean culture, which unfortunately, even African culture, I'm sorry, my, my, my. Fela Kuti, not Femi, Femi is a joke. Fela Kuti was a Pan-Africanist, giant. But Yusu Undor, who is a great musician, is a wonderful stage presence, his songs don't have anything to do with, with ideology. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, so there's, there's, there's that. Um, he's a great, but I, this is not to, to dismiss Ndur. He's a great musician. But there's no Felakuti. The Felakutis of this world are. are, are we, we need Fela. Maybe we're looking at a new one. <laughs> <laughs> Me, well. We Finally, the Africa Talks uh, title here because I think when Africa Talks, we, when Atto talks, rather, we all just want to keep on listening. Please go to thank him again.